Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? It's the last day, right? Kind of running on fumes a little bit. Uh, so we'll uh, see if we can be efficient this morning and uh, keep you awake in the process. Uh, if I can echo uh, what uh, Pastor Joe said last night uh, to OHBC, I want to thank you all for your very warm hospitality. Uh, you're a very gracious group of people. Uh, thank you for having us. Thank you for serving us and loving on us and giving us the opportunity to come minister alongside with you. Uh, each time we come here, I think we walk away uh, as, a, as a church uh, learning a little bit more about what it means to be given to hospitality. Uh, you guys do a wonderful job, so thank you very much. Um, we're going to continue this morning uh, looking at a few more principles for leadership, and we're going to position ourselves uh, just to uh, hear from the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your mercies that are new every morning. God, we thank you for your love that is so amazing. We thank you for your marvelous grace. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your long-suffering. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your goodness. Um, you do all things well. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you this morning as the body of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to gather at the feet of your word and hear your voice and to be able to run with what we hear. And so, Father, for your glory and for the edification of your church, would you use this time uh, to show us how we can be better at making disciples indeed? In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of recap, um, in the church, if we have... If we have leaders who do not have the heart of God, then what's going to happen for sure is we're going to make disciples who don't have the heart of God. If we have leaders who have not learned how to get hurt well, then what we're going to have in the church is we're going to make disciples who have also not learned how to get hurt well. So when, not if they get hurt, they're going to retaliate in the flesh, and that's going to be grievous to the Lord and not edifying to the church, right? And so what you have on your hands is essentially a mess. And so these principles are very, very critical. But we continue this morning looking at the eighth principle. When the Amalekite stranger in 2 Samuel chapter 1 came and reported to David that he finished Saul off on Mount Geboah, David had him executed, had him put to death, and he was right to do so. When Rechab and Baana murdered Ishbosheth and beheaded him and brought his head to David, David had them put to death, had them executed as well. And he was right in both cases to do what he did. But we continue this morning looking at this. We look at chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, uh, beginning in verse 26. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sarah. 
But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. So you see that, that phrase, fifth rib, I think it's four times in 2 Samuel and five, just from a, a, a numerology perspective, is often associated with death. And every time you see fifth rib in 2 Samuel, someone dies. So you, you see that reinforced here. Verse 28, and afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fell from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on a sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner, because he had slain their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. So Joab was very displeased with this peace treaty that David had apparently made with Abner, and acting in absolute rebellion, uh, he goes over David's head along with his brother to make this right and murders Abner. For starters, Hebron was one of six Levitical cities that had been designated as a city of refuge, which meant if someone had committed involuntary manslaughter, they could not be killed in a city of refuge. Abner killed Azahel, Joab's brother, but he did not murder him, when you know the history of that. After the battle at the pool of Gibeon, Azahel pursued Abner. Abner recognized that Azahel was not a man who was in his league, and he warned him twice, go find someone that's your own size, I'm not your guy. I'm giving you two warnings, stop. Azahel would not stop. He continued to pursue Abner to the point where for Abner it was kill or be killed. That's exactly what it was. So Joab and Abishai were out of bounds in murdering Abner and Hebron. Look at Exodus 21, beginning in verse 12. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be utterly put to death. And if a man lie not in wait but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee, city of refuge. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. What Joab and Abishai did was not involuntary. It was very premeditated. They usurped David's authority and committed premeditated murder in a city of refuge. And David essentially cursed Joab, but that's all that he did, nothing else. We continue looking at 2 Samuel 13, 21, as we build our case to make this next principle. But 2 Samuel 13, 21, but when, the king, but when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. So that was David's response to learning of the news that his son Amnon had raped his daughter Tamar. According to Deuteronomy 22, Amnon should have been put to death. No doubt about it. From here, Absalom would then order the murder of his brother, 
David's son, Amnon. David mourned that very deeply, but ultimately did nothing. And so this eighth leadership principle tells us this. Leaders must make the hard call when necessary. Must. Leaders must make the hard call when necessary. It was easier for David to have had the Amalekite stranger and Rechab and Baana to have them all put to death. That was relatively easy from the perspective of they were not family. Joab and Abishai were David's nephews. And of course, Amnon and Absalom were his sons. That would have been a very hard call. (laughs) That would have been a very hard call to put family to death, literally. Difficult, for sure. But please, would you consider this? The consequences, and this is true every time, the consequences of not making the hard call are always harder than making the hard call. Uh, This is true every time. Uh, Just from a parental perspective, I I learned this in parenting, right? Like, you know, once the kids, they say the terrible twos, I think for us it was a terrible once. (laughs) Like when they began to manifest their sin nature and and just in the process of, of working through all that, one of the things that God showed me was, son, listen, It's much easier to deal with this at 1 and 2 versus 12, 13, 15, 16, 17. Do the hard thing now. Joab and Absalom would both go on to do greater damage, much greater damage. And there are a few things that tempt us as leaders to bypass making this hard call. One of them is it's just downright hard. It's just hard. These are extremely difficult conversations to have. I have, I have them. I have to have them. Where you're leading up to this conversation and you can't sleep. <laughs> I mean, it is just, it is consuming you. This is a very hard thing. And we don't look forward to it. But, you know, no matter how you slice it, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. This is very difficult. It's hard. And you think to yourself, it would just be easy to just let this go, and eventually it'll work itself out. Where here's the sober truth, it never just works itself out eventually, does it? It only goes from bad to worse. The other thing that compels us to bypass making this hard call is the fallout. How is this going to affect the church? Is this going to result in people leaving? And man, how many people are going to leave and and what does their giving look like? (laughs) How is this going to set us back? Unfortunately, there will always be fallout when these decisions are made, but a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, doesn't it? The fallout will be much worse if we don't make the hard call every single time. One of the things that guides us um, within the leadership ranks uh, at Midtown uh, it's something that Sam uh, reinforces to us with, with, with some degree of regularity, if you would. And I'll share it with you, but it, it's, it's that we abide by this principle of making the distinction between weakness and wickedness. That, that, that's, a, that's a core uh, principle, operating principle for us and leadership at MBT. And I'm not saying it's 
valuable because we abide by the MBT, but it, 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 it has helped us to uh, form and set our approach to dealing with some difficult things when, when you can work through this principle. And I'll do my very best to, to try and justify it biblically, but here in 2 Samuel 3 and verse 39, David said, And I am this day weak, though anointed king. Now, at this point, he was anointed king uh, by the tribe of Judah, his tribe. He wasn't king over all of Israel yet. We're going to get to that here in just a minute. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. So what Joab and Abishai had done was wicked. We continue, and we look at 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 11. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person which is interesting. Once again, you see David's heart, particularly in these early chapters of 2 Samuel, truly being a man after God's own heart. Because when he says, wicked men have slain a righteous person, he's referring to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, uh, who was ruling and reigning as the king of Israel because Abner had appointed him to that, not God. But David still referred to him as a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? Rechab and Baana murdered and beheaded Isbasha. It was wicked what they did. After Solomon took the throne, Adonijah, David's son, went and caught hold of the altars in the tabernacle. He had attempted to swindle the throne from Solomon, although David had made it clear that Solomon was going to succeed him, Adonijah said, we'll see about that. I'll make myself king. But by catching hold of the altars, he was essentially begging for mercy. Well, let's see what Solomon said about that in 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 51. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon. For, lo, he hath caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today, that he will not slay his servant with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. If Adonijah was a worthy man, he would have been broken and contrite over what he had done. Praise the Lord. We can work with that all day long, can't we? We can work with brokenness and contrition. Give me that. We can get somewhere now. Uh, one of the things that <clears throat> I'm careful to remind uh, the men that I'm, I'm privileged to, to lead on a regular basis is that, hey, listen, just always know this. We can and we will work through and deal with anything very well, provided that we're both humble. There isn't a hurdle we can't clear. There isn't an issue we can't work through. If, 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 if everybody comes to the table and we're humble, we'll get somewhere. <laughs> but the minute uh, we come with something different, uh, well, that, that just makes things difficult. Because when wickedness is involved, we're dealing with a hard attitude now that calls for a much more direct, biblical, and firm approach. It's very, very firm. And one of the telltale signs that you're dealing with wickedness 
is the clear absence of brokenness and contrition after a foul violation of God's word. I mean, someone has grossly crossed the line of God's word, and it's like, man, they can sleep at night like nothing ever happened. Like, what's your problem? Why are you getting so worked up about this? Why are you so excited about this? What's so bad about this? Oh, man. And it wasn't recorded anywhere that Joab, Abishai, Rechab, Bihana, Amnon, or Absalom were ever broken and contrite over what they had done. Sit anywhere. And Adonijah would take another swipe at the throne to only be put to death, showing that he ultimately wasn't a worthy man. He was wicked after all. My heart... And again, I, I do believe that leadership is a privilege. I, I believe that uh, leaders are, we're no different than anybody in the room. There are, again, Brandon, to Brandon's point, there are no elite people in the body of Christ. Like, and I'm thankful for that because, and I can go back to what Troy said, I'm qualified. <laughs> if you've got to be elite, if you've got to be great, I mean, you're talking about a guy who had a 1.7 GPA in high school. Like, and God can use me. <laughs> cool. Wow, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? But one of the things that um, I am careful to, uh, to just be mindful of and operate by in leadership is, um, is that the people that I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to lead, they have permission and they have room to fail. They need that just as much as I do. That happens in my life and it happens in theirs. I'm sorry, we're all going to fail. We're going to talk about that here in a minute, too. And most of the time when that happens, I don't say anything. I don't do anything. Or if I do say something, by the grace of God, I'm not sure that they recognize that we're actually having a constructive moment. We're actually having a constructive conversation here. I'm actually um, giving them some measure of correction. But I, it's, it seems a little obvious to me that they're not aware that it's happening. Praise the Lord. And, and I'll tell you, uh, one of the places I learned that is from my pastor. Uh, even, and I've, I have constructive moments uh, from Sam to me. In those moments, Sam has always shown himself to be gracious, to be merciful, to be kind, to be loving. Praise the Lord. And, and I want to reproduce that. I want to replicate that. But as long as their hard attitude is set to humility, we're good. We can work through it. We can get somewhere. But when it is set to pride and stubbornness, apart from repentance, we're going to have to make the hard call. We're going to have to deal with that. And one of the reasons that you have to do that is because that person now has become a danger to the flock, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is an issue. Unfortunately, sin is so very contagious, isn't it? especially certain kinds of sin. So, next, we go back to chapter 3, 2 Samuel, and we begin in verse 1. Now, there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. 
And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third Absalom, the son of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ethrim by Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So as it always does, God's plan, God's will was moving forward, for sure. The house of Saul was waxing weaker and weaker because David was God's anointed, not Ishbosheth. Now, David would have known. He would have known. He would have been able to discern and clearly see that the diabolical agenda led by Abner was weakening. It was crumbling. It wasn't coming to pass, and that God was inching him closer and closer to what God had promised him. He would have known that. But verses 2 through 5 here in chapter 1 are just piercing. They're just piercing. While God was at work, so was David by adding wives and concubines, which according to Deuteronomy 17 was a no-no for kings. Yeah, David wasn't the king of all of Israel yet, but he was the king over Judah. He had been anointed. That was his second anointing. There'll be a third before he takes the whole nation as a whole. But he was a king at this point. And there are some names in this list that were going to be a problem for him later. We move to chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Now, if we stopped right there, we could just say praise the Lord. I mean, look at what God was doing. God was merciful and gracious and good and fulfilling what he had promised David. And, and, and when that is happening, what should our response be? Our response should be praise. Our response should be thanksgiving. Our response should be worship. Our response should be faithfulness. Our response should be obedience. But verse 13 it hits like a freight train. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. I mean, what was happening here historically and, and even doctrinally was tremendous. David now has become king over all of Israel which is a picture of what's going to happen at the second advent of Christ. But at last, the promise was fulfilled. Praise God. Every, after everything he had gone through, he had survived Saul and all of that. And then he survives this rebellion and the civil war in the kingdom, all of that. 
He had also taken the stronghold of Zion, the city of David, from the Jebusites. It's very fair to say that God was blessing him, and he knew of it once again. In the backdrop of that, we see this progressive manifestation of a weakness that set the trajectory of a collapse that was coming, a massive one. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Let me just say, I, 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 and I, I, think this is a, I think this type of thinking is a byproduct of our culture, where um, our culture tells us that when it comes to ourselves, uh, what we want to do is really focus on our strengths and, and focus on the, all the positives about ourselves. And in our culture, it, it really, if there's anything negative about you, uh, anything for us uh, that is inconsistent with the character and person of Christ, um, well, that's not because of you. That's because of what somebody did to you or what somebody said about you. Everybody's a victim. But I'm going to tell you, uh, one of the things that we all must do, especially leaders, is you need to be very in tune with your weaknesses. And by being in tune, I mean honest. Honest with yourself, honest with God, honest with key people in your life. Uh, One of the things that I, I... I, I think it's very important because this happens in leadership, right? Um, what happens in leadership is over time, what you realize that is that a, a number of people are looking at you like this. What every leader better have, if it's just one person, is this. This is someone who is not awestruck by your name. They love you, but they're not impressed with you. And they will be honest with you. I've told this story before, and it's good for me to tell it. I was with a good buddy of mine named Pete. And Pete is uh, an honest New Yorker, if I could say it that way. And we're out one day, and uh, he, uh, he reaches into his pocket and gives me a breath mint. And he goes, he goes, trust me. <laughs> and I'm like, he goes, trust me, you need this. And I said, are you, are you telling me my breath stinks? He goes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm like, bro, I, I use mouthwash. <laughs> I don't care what you used. You need this. You know what? In the moment, and we were in public, I'm like, you couldn't wait till we got to the car? You couldn't, I mean, like, man, you just undressed me publicly. Every leader needs a Pete. You need someone to tell you when your breath stinks. Because they love you. I mean, that's, thank God for Pete. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. And it came to pass... After the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed 
and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David was at his peak. The apex. I mean, this thing was rolling. It was. He had experienced massive victories in battle. His kingdom was expanding. But when the battle resumed with Ammon, instead of going to battle, instead of leading his troops into battle, he chose to stay behind. No specific reason is stated as to why, but when you look at everything that was leading up to this point, I could envision him saying, you know what? Things are good. Things are going well, man. I mean, look at all, wow. Man, I am the king over this place. Look at the kingdom. Look at what's, I mean, man, we are, we're kicking butt and taking names. This thing is going down. Instead of being steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, he said, you know what? I can relax. I can relax. I can let my guard down. It's all good. I tell you what, you want to talk about comparing Scripture with Scripture and, and see a striking contrast. Look at 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 11 and then compare that with 1 Kings chapter 10 and 1 Kings chapter 11. It'll blow your mind. 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, David uh, defeats Ammon and Syria. And then here it is, chapter 11, he sees Bathsheba on the roof. 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon's on top of the world. I mean, it's rolling. 1 Kings chapter 11, man, he loved many strange women. Wow. Insane. Here's the 10th or the ninth leadership principle. You're like, I wish it was the 10th so we could be done. Here's the ninth one. Leaders must manage success well. We have to. We must manage success well. Listen, the most dangerous season in the life of a leader is when the blessings of God are being poured over their ministry. That is the most dangerous hour. It is. People are getting saved. The church is growing numerically, spiritually. Offerings are getting bigger and bigger. Churches are being planted. And listen, we're not talking about this happening for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. We're talking about over, you know, three to five years. You can look and go, wow, man, look at what's happening. Things are good. But here is the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. you got to be careful. See, when things are going really well, here is the temptation. They're going, eventually, it doesn't start this way, but eventually this is where it can go, especially if we're not guarding our heart. Things are going well because of me. 
It's because of my leadership. It's because of my decision making. It's because of my preaching. It, it, it's be that. So one of the things we talk a lot about, um, it, it, and I think it's good um, to to repeat this, but but one of the things we talk about a lot in foundations two and three, uh, in that environment where we're equipping believers to disciple others, it's it's very important to recognize that we are not responsible for anyone's success or failure. That 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 is beyond the scope of what we do. Now, here's where it's interesting because when someone doesn't make it, they don't they don't they don't finish the, the process, uh, especially for people who are discipling for the first time, that can be crushing. And they process that like, well, man, what did I do? Man, I was I not teaching well enough? Was I not doing it right? And it's like, be careful, because if you are saying you are responsible for their failure, guess what you're also saying? What you're also saying is, is if they do succeed, it's because of you. So let's be careful. Very careful. The bivocational church planter, with an average of seven people who are attending regularly, doesn't need any help mustering up a desperate prayer life. (laughs) He's desperate, and he knows it. He needs God, and he knows it. Desperate, and that's a good thing. The challenge is staying in that place. Because when the parking lot is full Sunday after Sunday, and we don't have to watch every nickel that we spend, that's when we're very vulnerable. When we can make decisions now, we don't have to even pray. Just get the church card out, and we'll take care of that. And we stand up, and the place is packed. People are excited. And the offering is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, that's tough. That is as tough as that church planner standing on a Sunday morning looking at seven people, and four of them are his family. So let me just give you some, some, some points on how to manage success and um, I was taught as a kid to respect your elders, so I'm going to do that. Joe McCaig said, if it's not alliterated, it doesn't count. So this will be very alliterated. How about that? Here's the first thing is be honest. Be honest. Uh, John 15:5, Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And here it is. For without me, would you say it with me? Ye can do nothing. That's the truth. Without the Lord, what can we do? Nothing. I can tell you what I can do. I can make a mess of things. Seriously. Quick, fast, and hurry. I mean, I can make an absolute, genuine, first-class mess And one of the things, though, one of the things that can tempt us and does tempt us to think that what's happening is because of us is because what people are whispering to us. People have a way of doing that, don't they? So let me tell you, one of the things that when I was was younger in ministry, like compliments used to be a big deal to me. Like, yeah, really? 
thank you. Like, like praise the Lord, but I, mean, I, I think I needed that. It feels good. Until I learned that the same people that compliment you can use that same tongue to do something totally different. So the Lord taught me, you don't, you don't make your living on that. You don't make your living on that. You don't. If we have a John 15 relationship with Christ, we'll know better. We'll know why it's happening. We'll know. Lord, I know in my heart and in my mind that all of this is happening by you and for you. That is always the truth. There's nothing good that dwells in this thing right here. So I know it can't be me. (laughs) I know it can't. Next, be humble. Be humble. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. It is so good for me. So one of the things I think is very critical uh, when it comes to what we value, what we value in life, what we value in ministry is alignment. That our value system is in alignment with God's. So what is it that God values? Well, I'm going to tell you. One of the things that he values is humility. In the eyes of God, humility is an honorable trait. It's honorable. It's glorifying to God. It pleases him. It's Christ-like. It edifies people. You know, I, I, I came from a very uh, broken and dysfunctional family that, that's where I was reared and um, was exposed to a lot of darkness and pain and hurt, and it was, it was my normal. And so when I, when, I, when I married my wonderful bride, my wife's a very gracious woman. Um, she's a fruit of the spirit woman. And um, I had to learn how to disagree with her. I mean, I'd had, you know, 20... You know, 22 years of, you know, when, when you disagree, you, you get disagreeable. You get profane. You get nasty. You get volatile. You get heated. That's how you express yourself when you're, un, when you're unhappy. And so, you know, those early years of our marriage, you know, I, I, I had to learn how to, and, and her thing was soft answer. I'm not, I'm not coming down there with you. But I am inviting you to come up here with me. Uh, how about we both humble ourselves? That, that will win. What you're inviting me to, we're going to lose. Because that doesn't glorify God. The Lord is faithful to remind me that <laughs> I will never lose, ever. When I choose humility, I can't lose. I cannot lose. Stay humble. Stay humble. Next, be hungry. Be hungry. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? Do not quench the spirit of God when he is revealing to you that your appetite for the work of the ministry is greater than your appetite for God himself. Don't quench that. Don't tune that out. Don't ignore that. And one of the signs that you're there is when we'll find high capacity, great determination, great energy, great effort to pour countless hours into study so that we can preach and teach and disciple. But when it comes to our appetite personally for God and for his word without an audience, the gap is very wide. That becomes a chore. And we just can't seem to find the heart. We can't seem to find the time. We can't seem to find the interest. We can't seem to find the the will to get away from everybody and everything and just be alone with God. Because God, I'm, I'm hungry. I, 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 I want you. And again, and not to be corny, but this reminds me of uh, Rocky Three, Right? Apollo, or not Apollo, that was Clever Lang. Clever Lang, right? And you remember the uh, Rocky's training, you know? And he's training in these high-end facilities now. And, I mean, you know, it's the good life. And Mickey says something to him that I'll never forget. He goes, the worst thing that can happen to a fighter has happened to you. You're not hungry anymore. Man, in Rocky 1, Rocky 2, is this humble guy from South Philly, nothing, you know, just this, you know, this dude who's just trying, you know, he's, he was hungry. But man, once he won that belt and the millions began rolling in and the spotlight got bigger, yeah, man, I'm going to train and give a woman a smooch on the cheek. (laughs) A lot different from Rocky 1 and 2. That will eventually get us every time. And and here's the thing, like um, leaders can, can get away with this for years. And in your mind, you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, eventually I'll get to that. Eventually I'll get back to you, God. But, I mean, come on, look at everything going on. I, I mean, I've, I've got I to gotta deliver. And God says, no, what you have to do is know me. That's what you have to do. You've got to know me. You've got to love me. You've got to desire me more than anything and anyone. Next. Be holy. Be holy. How am I doing, Joe, with the alliteration? Okay, all right, very good, very good. Troy, he's an alliterator too, so. Uh, Titus 1.8, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Holiness is a requirement to hold the very esteemed office of pastor. It's a, it's a requirement, but all leaders must be holy. So uh, with all this, can, can we just really make something clear? And uh, this is something that God whispers to my heart and to my mind, uh, again, with, with some regularity. But 
leadership never comes with the privilege to sin. It doesn't. It doesn't. We are not afforded that in leadership. Sometimes people subtly conclude that because of all that they've done, all that they've given to God's people, all the, maybe all the books they've written and all the conferences they've preached and all the people they've counseled and all the sermons they've preached and just their contributions to the kingdom of God somehow has earned them the privilege of having a slice of sin in their life. That these principles that we're covering right now are not applicable to them anymore. They're in a, a different class. Oh, man. See, that's, once again, you've you got to have a Pete. Who is that person who is close enough to you when you start smelling yourself? To say, well, I'm smelling you too, bro, and I'm not impressed at all. Be careful, right? Okay, finally, let's go to 2 Samuel 12, begin in verse 19. If I can tell you, um, one, of the, one of the people in my life um, that will get very honest with me is my wife. And uh, I, it, God, at, at, at very pointed times, will use her to say something, and she'll say it softly. It'll be gracious, and she'll say it in passing, and I'm like, what in the world? I mean, where it will bring me to my knees. Where I'm like, oh my goodness. That's right. <laughs> How long have you been seeing that? It, it, and I, it's like, Lord, thank you. I'll never forget it. She gave me a critique once. We were sitting at a stoplight. Ruined my lunch. Sunday after church, man, you're starving. We're almost home. It's like, you couldn't have held this to after lunch? <laughs> so I had a stoplight, and we were having a conversation about our cl my class at Midtown, and, and she goes, well, I think, you know. I was like, there goes my lunch. And it rocked me. But, man, it was good. It was so good. So when that happens, like, welcome it. They're just trying to, they love you. And here's the thing. My wife, man, she loves, respects me. She's amazing, but she's not impressed with me. I mean, she's a cheerleader. She's a fan, but, but, but she's not blind. And I'm thankful for that. Okay, 2 Samuel 12, 19. But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him 
and he did eat. So David's response to learning that the child had died was reflective of the fact that he had made peace with God's judgment and he was moving forward. Now, it's important to note, this is important, that David did not perceive himself to be a victim or to criticize God that God was too heavy-handed. Like, God, okay, I get it, I, I blew it, but man, did you have to take, I mean, it wasn't the child's fault. Boy, had you never done what you did, we're not having this conversation, are we? It's interesting to observe people who will blatantly, I mean blatantly, disobey God's word, grieve the spirit of God, and then question the goodness and righteousness of God in their reaping. So God, like, you didn't have to take my ministry. Okay, I took a little money. Okay, I, I had a couple of women. Don't punish the church. What? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Here's someone who they believe that they were entitled to a slice of sin in their life. David was broken and contrite, Psalm 51. Even going into the house of the Lord to worship. He got it. Here's the tenth principle that we'll close with, and that is leaders must learn to manage failure well. Yep. It has been said that when a woman walks down the street, her greatest fear is that she'll be assaulted, or killed. When a man walks down the street, his biggest fear is that he will be laughed at. To be perceived as not being worthy of respect, to be perceived as inadequate, to be perceived as a failure, at best, is an unenviable position for men. Boy, we hate failure, don't we? It's delicate. It is delicate, <laughs> and it can stalk you in ministry, can it? It can stalk you. What, what, what do people think? Do, do they think I'm not whatever enough? Here's the reality. All leaders are going to succeed and fail in ministry. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. I would imagine that there's unified agreement on that point. I can tell you there are some moments I wish I had back this week. <laughs> and we're at a conference, right? This is as close to heaven as we're going to get. Like, we're all together. We're all like-minded. And I still, there were some moments I wish I could have back. Just being away from Lori this week, like, my heart hurts. I can't wait to see her. But you know what? In the process of that, I realized some things. Like, it shouldn't take me coming 800 miles away to realize how wonderful she is. There are some things I need to adjust when I get back. Like, I need, I need right? I'm just, I will always be a work in progress. So, 
in case you didn't appreciate the previous alliteration, I'm going to give it to you again. <laughs> so let's talk about managing failure, because we're going to have to do that. Uh, one of the things I can tell you, uh, and from a parental perspective as well, is that this is something that I know that we have, and we, and we continue to emphasize with our children, is teaching them how to manage success and failure, because they're going to do both. And failure can be crushing to them. I remember when my daughter, and she's not athletic at all. She, uh, her big brother, Ken, is, that's her world. So whatever Ken is doing, she wants to do. Well, Ken's in the sports. Bree is not. Now, she, she's, a, she's a sweetheart. I mean, she'll melt your heart. She, she's, I don't know, okay, that's your little girl. I, I don't know, but she, I'm telling you, she's sweet. But not athletic. <laughs> so... She tried out for the volleyball team, and she didn't make it. And she was devastated, crushed. I'm a failure. I got cut. I didn't succeed. And, and just to come alongside her and say, well, hey, let's, let's take a step back. And how about we sit down together and how about we define success and failure from God's perspective? So based on what Joshua 1.8 says, the fact that you didn't make the volleyball team, does that make you a failure? No. Okay, let's, let's go from here. There, okay, but even something when, let's say it is something of a, of a, uh, of a sin uh, nature, right? My kids do that too. Being able to comfort them and counsel them and coach them through that, it's great. They need to learn how to manage success and how to manage failure. They're going to apply for jobs they're not going to get. They're going to be interested in someone who's going to say, no, thank you. Okay. Welcome to life. Okay. Managing failure. Number one, remember your frame. Remember your frame. Psalm 103, verse 14, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. That's our frame. We're dust. And failure reminds me of my frame, that I am just dust. So, manage our expectations. They shouldn't be too high. It's just dust. And because I am just dust, I'm weak. And I am not beyond falling and failing. I'm dust. God knows that, but sometimes we forget it. Right? You, again, you start drinking that Kool-Aid, you start reading that newspaper, and in your mind you've got a cape on your back, right? And you can, I forget the Superman, what is it, Leap? I'm getting old. <laughs> what is it? Say it again for me. Yes, that's me, right? No. Failure, that's why I said yesterday, it's a very, very, very good friend of mine. It keeps me grounded. Next, remember your father. Remember your father. 
2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. God is merciful. Amen. And according to the Old Testament law, adultery and murder were punishable by death. David's sin had earned him that. His sin had earned him death, but God was merciful. God was merciful. One of the blessings of failure is that it reminds me that God's mercy is not limited to Calvary. I think sometimes when it comes to God's mercy and grace, we, we kind of conclude that, that, well, yeah, I see it at the cross, but maybe he went bankrupt after that. Like he doesn't have any more. No, 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 no. I'm so thankful that is his mercy new some mornings? No, it's new every morning. That's my father. Like I'm telling you, I, I, I mean, I don't know about you. I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I know a lot of you. and Man, praise the Lord, you're a blessing. But like there are times when you just blow it, right? You blow it. And you're crushed. You're crushed. Like, God, I know that grieved you. That God, after all you've done for me, how could I think, speak, and even do what I did? Like, you ought to just wipe me out right now. Why wouldn't you? To only go sit with God in a quiet time and open his word and like, there's the mercy of God. Oh, man. Lord. Woo. Wow. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. How in the world could you be merciful to this guy? You see how I treated my wife this week? I was anything but a good husband. Oh, man. It was God's mercy that led David to go into the tabernacle and worship because he knew what he deserved. He knew. I deserve death. Finally, remember your favor. Not finally, but next. Remember your favor. Uh, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 24. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan, the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon means peaceful. Jedidiah, beloved of Jehovah. God really does give beauty for ashes. Isaiah 61.3. He does. Out of this very dark episode of sin, God gave David and Bathsheba peace and love and David's successor who would continue the lineage of Jesus Christ.
Is that not the grace of God? Is that not God's favor? Yes, it is. Now, was there some bitter reaping that awaited David? Oh, for sure. For sure. The kind of reaping that once it began to unfold, David would have given his right arm to go back to that day on the roof where he would decide differently. But the grace of God was certainly present as well. Finally, remember your field. Remember your field. 2 Samuel 12, 29. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head. The weight thereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head, and he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. So after Joab finished Rabbah off and Ammon, uh, he had David come so David could claim the victory as the king and make that part of his kingdom. God judged David, but he did not dethrone him. David was still the king, and he had a work to do. Now, it's good for me to always remember, are there some decisions that I can make in ministry that are disqualifying? Absolutely. And it is good for me to know that. It is good for me to respect that. No doubt about it. But even if that is the case, I want to leave you with this principle when it comes to managing failure. And man, this one means a great deal to me. If we're still breathing, God is not finished. If we're still breathing, God is not finished. So praise the Lord. So if we're still breathing, guess what? That means that God has got enough mercy and grace for us to move forward from here. Amen? Lord, thank you so much. Your word is awesome. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to open it and hear your voice. May we hide these things that we've looked at today in our heart for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.